0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Week. I'm Drew Creasman. And I'm Ira Kriesman. And on this episode, we hope to conclude the plot of Final Fantasy VI. Uh, We will not be concluding our conversation on the characters and themes. We'll still have more to do on that, but uh, we hope to get to the end of the game here before we can start our conversation on the art and gameplay. A couple of episodes on the music before we finally wrap up the big questions. Uh, We have spent 11 episodes inside the plot of Final Fantasy VI. It's been a a remarkable journey. There's some sort of cosmic perfection in the fact that we are recording this one day after the 25th anniversary of this game's release. And so it is uh, with great joy, but also a, a little bit of that sort of bitter sweet sadness that comes with uh, finishing this game anytime we've played through it. When it comes to an end there there's a bit of melancholy. But when last we left our heroes, we were searching the world over for friends, reuniting them, getting the band back together, and the most recent member of the band that has rejoined the group is Terra, who took a moment to figure out whether or not this is really what she wanted out of her life after finding new purpose at an orphanage taking care of all of these orphaned kids uh, after an attack by the legendary Pumbaba and her transforming into her Esper form to save the children she recognized that there is one task left if she really wants to protect not just these kids but the whole world they must get the rest of the Returners back together and head to Kafka's Tower to defeat him once and for all. So, to that end, let's go to Jador, where the rich people live. Sure. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Haven't been there yet. So, if you will recall, in Jador there is a man named Owser, and he is a patron of the arts. He, uh, it was his house where we met the impresario and found out about the problems uh, in the opera. You know, the gambler was going to come get Maria he also had an art gallery in his house. So if you go to Jador and you talk to folks, you can hear that uh, a while ago, a little girl entered the, the art collector's house uh, and that he uh, he in particular is interested in art that evokes the end of the world. That's what's in now. And Jador is one of the few towns that does not seem to have suffered any ill effects from Kefka, which might be a little commentary.
0: Yeah, uh, going along with what we've talked about earlier, whenever there are horrible tragedies they tend to affect the people who have the most the least right
1: so if you go to alzer's house it's dark uh you have to find the light switch in order to get up to the art gallery you can read alzer's diary uh wherein he s- confesses that something is happening to him uh it started when that portrait was painted of me and there are voices downstairs So this is uh, a brief dungeon. You can go up into the art gallery. Uh, Some of the paintings will have treasures in them. Some of them will be uh, enemies to fight. There was a hint somewhere earlier about talk to the emperor twice. So if you look at the emperor's portrait twice, uh, you get a letter that uh, points you toward the Phoenix Cave. It says something like the mountains in the form of a star. But uh, the most important thing here is you go down... Into the lower levels of the art gallery, you find Owser, who's uh, who's held captive by some sort of painting, and you see a familiar little girl doing, you know, working on the painting. And there's a, it's it's a, a painting of a goddess, and there's a, a monster here that we'll see repeated a couple times. Most recently, I remember it from Final Fantasy 15. It's called the I'm almost certainly going to say this wrong. Shatternuk. It's a it's, it's, yeah yeah okay it, it's a, a demon ghost thing in, inhabiting the painting and it's taken over the little girl she she says the girl in the painting is mine you can't have her you can defeat the monster and release Realm Owser explains that ever since getting this this particular rock I've wanted to have a painting of the goddess Starlet and I knew only Realm was good enough to paint her and so you get the magicite from him uh, it's not real clear to me whether the magicite was also the ghost inhabiting the painting but some combination of the magicite and realm's power with paint and light entrapped her and owser in the house entrapped it let's get weird from there it's a good idea to go now to the fanatics tower strago is here he's with the fanatics he's in line they're not quite doing the oeo chant from uh the Wizard of Oz, but that's always the impression I got.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty close. <laughs> uh, Strago
1: won't respond unless you bring Realm, but Realm will snap him out of it with a "You old fool, you still standing?" and and that's that's basically all there is to Realm and Strago's story for rejoining our Warriors of Light. He he is kind of embarrassed to have fallen to despair, uh, and is of course thrilled to see Realm again. And then you should probably, you know, go through the dungeon that is the Fanatics Tower. There's some thieves sort of camping out near the base, uh, explaining that there's a lot of treasure here, but I can only get so far up. And these people have sold their hearts to Kefka, and only magic can be used here. Can't do anything else. So I think earlier I talked about using the uh, Celeste's Runic Blade here to absorb magic, but I'm pretty sure you can't do that, so I was wrong.
0: Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) it'd be nice, but yeah. It's a, it's a great uh, side dungeon challenge thing. It, it, it's a lot of fun. You remember the first time we did it when we got all the way up and all the way back down and then died on the very final yep. step? I recall yeah. that. Yeah. God yeah. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, to, sorry. sorry to bring it up. Yeah, but it, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a great nuance to the world of Ruin that I've always appreciated.
1: Uh, I've already mentioned it, but there is a Phoenix Cave. Uh, you have to, again, you need the airship to get there. There's a little depression in the star shaped mountain range that contains the Phoenix Cave. Uh, it's a two party dungeon, so you need, uh, or you don't need, but you can have two parties of four. You definitely need two parties, though. And I love being able to split up your parties. It's one of my favorite things about Final Fantasy VI, because that way you can use more characters. Right. There are lots of empty chests in the Phoenix Cave. And that will quickly become uh, obvious that, that Locke has been here. And you eventually find Locke, and he's glad that you're all safe, and he's been looking for a legendary relic that can restore life. So they do, you, you do eventually find the, the Phoenix magicite that's got some cracks in it. And if you have Celeste with you, she, she realizes this is for Rachel, isn't it? Yeah. And so there's, some, there's a little bit, I mean, he's doing it because he feels like he's screwed up. Like, he still owes her something, but also maybe he's still in love with her?
0: Yeah, uh, human emotions are complicated. And just because you've moved on... We've talked about this with Cyan a little bit. You can move on with your life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you forget or give up on your past. And locks in a pretty tough situation there. Because Rachel is still alive she's in a coma and has been it's unclear for years i suppose yeah and you know we talked about this in the opera episode about how that story in some ways there there are some parallels because you do at some point have to move on with your life and he's very clearly fallen for celeste and, and and cares very deeply for her and and her for him but that doesn't mean that you have to put away all of your past or any feelings that you've ever felt for anybody else and just more I think adult nuance in this game that it's really interesting to me too. We've talked about that, you know, the, the suicide attempt and the teen pregnancy and orphans and a lot of people that are killed, whether it was at Doma or when Kefka destroyed the world. There are a lot of really adult themes in this game that I think show you where they were going in terms of trying to tell stories, because while there's still, you know, there's no, bad language. There's no sex. There's no gore in terms of the violence. There is. It's a very dark and violent story at times. And these little nuances, like with Rachel, I think, show you where this company really wanted to get into these more adult-themed themes.
1: So with the Phoenix Magisite, cracked though it is, we can go back to the town of Culligan, where Rachel is still in her coma. The old man there
0: with the kooky music who is not Gao's father, but may as well be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He says, if only the Magisite didn't bear these deep cracks, because uh, when you take the Magisite up to Rachel, nothing happens, or at least at first. But then the Phoenix appears, and it's really a neat scene because it does that thing where it's a a single room, the basement here, and it's kind of small, and so all around is blackness. And it's just meant to be that, you know, there's you know we're in the basement we're only looking at this room but the phoenix takes up the whole screen and it's really quite cool and rachel gets a few moments we've seen ghosts a couple times now uh, especially with regards to cyan and we've seen memories when it comes to shadow But here, Rachel is still alive, and yet she's only got a little bit of time. And she says, Locke, I dreamed of seeing you. I wanted to hear your voice. The phoenix has given me a little time. I wanted to tell you I was happy with you. I thought only of you during that accident. I have to go now. I will always love you. You must cast off the anguish. Today, I set your heart free. Phoenix, be reborn and give your power to Locke.
0: Yeah, that's uh, and maybe a little cleaner than it would ever happen in real life that the person gives you permission to move on. There's a similar scene in Final Fantasy VII Advent Children when Cloud is on his motorcycle and, and brooding and Aerith appears to him in dream or in memory or in, in whatever and says, I never blamed you. You know, you came for me, and that's that's all that mattered. And and this is that moment where those are the words Locke has been waiting again, years, years, year, not waiting, working years and years to hear. That not that it wasn't his fault. He's not trying to let himself off the hook. He just wants to know that she still cares for him. That that he did the right thing by her. As he did as best as he could by her. And it's just, it's heartbreaking, but it's also very beautiful.
1: So uh, we have achieved now the Phoenix magicite. Uh Not unlike other Final Fantasy games in the wake of tragedy, we get new superpowers. Right, New superpowers and
0: some existential closure.
1: So Locke does admit, uh, Celeste is upstairs, and, and uh, when Locke goes back up, he admits, Okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm all right now. I feel, I feel better. And you know what? Cue the hero music, because we got work to do. and and we leave the house, but then Locke comes back inside and you get all the stuff you raided from the Phoenix Cave, so (laughs) all all those chests you didn't open or you opened and nothing was in there. Now that you've got Locke, you can go back to Narsh. We talked about that last episode. There's the the Ragnarok Magicite, and there's the Cursed Shield. Then you can go to... Well, let's go to Triangle Island next. There's just this island that's just sitting there, and if you don't know to go there, there's no reason to. But, uh i was very curious what is this island and i went there and there's a a monster here called the zone eater and it will suck you in and on a whim i let it suck all my characters in and then you get this cool music uh and there's this weird goofy dungeon and there's broken bridges and there's these dudes in green coats for some reason that will knock you off the bridge and then you got to climb back up there's this crushing ceiling sort of mini game where you got to like get to the right spot so that when the ceiling falls in you won't immediately get a game over it's kind of a platforming action adventure section
0: yeah right like you've been there's a lot of theories about whether or not the zone eater and go go and this is interdimensional travel rather than just going inside of a a monster and i love the idea that to sell that you're in a different dimension rather than just in a different part of the world it almost becomes a different genre of game for a minute.
1: <laughs> Shrouded in odd clothing. Is this a man? A woman? Or should we ask? This is, yeah, this is our last main character. Uh, or our last uh, playable character i suppose i'm not sure anyone would say gogo is a main character of final fantasy 6. Uh, and to answer that question no we probably shouldn't ask uh, probably none of our business uh, whether or not gogo has has a, a physical sex or not or or is a particular gender gogo is the master of the simulacrum and claims my miming skills will astonish you and uh, they're not wrong uh, yeah yeah <laughs>
0: you can do just about anything that anybody else in the game can do which is pretty fun and interesting but yeah i don't know if the creators of final fantasy 6 did it on purpose whether or not that line was supposed to play just for mysteriousness maybe even a little bit of humor but we have a a genderless character here and that's not Without importance uh, to a lot of people out there, I-, I would think, you know, there's gender impacts and affects so much of the way we think and how we interpret certain characters. And we've talked a lot about it on this podcast and will continue to. And Final Fantasy has a great history of strong female characters. And we've talked about that. But there's also an interesting history here of non-specified. Uh, Quinna in Final Fantasy IX is another non-specified. And you don't see that in stories very often. And we're understanding in real life that it happens more in real life. There, There hasn't been much representation for whether it's the trans community or people who just prefer not to have their gender or sexuality be in any way a part of their identity. It's maybe a little bit too bad that there's not more story relevance here for gogo you can't drive that theme home at all because after this point all he does is or she does is see there i did it again that's exactly the point we're so used to all they do all gogo does is mimic right
1: and uh it's also worth noting that final fantasy and maybe this is because of yoshitaka amano's artwork is often talked about as having very androgynous characters or, or feminine male characters. And at least most of my reading on, on the commentary on this was largely negative, at least when I was in high school back in the 90s. And I guarantee every, every time a new Final Fantasy comes out, somebody's going to write an article somewhere about how androgynous the boys are. And most of them aren't going to mean that in a positive way. So i like that at least... There there's the head fake toward having a a powerful, interesting, androgynous character be one of our playable characters. Yeah. I think it's also worth talking about that Gogo originally comes from Final Fantasy V, whether or not this is that character, tough to say. The Gogo of Final Fantasy V will give you the will give you the mime class if you defeat them. And the way to defeat them is to do nothing because Gogo tells you right away I am going to copy everything you do. So if you don't do anything, they will congratulate you and say, excellent, well done, here's the mimic class. I also think it's interesting that mimicking and miming aren't really the same thing. They're close. Like a a mime sort of mimics what one would do if one were interacting with actual things, but a mime does not actually interact with actual things. So GoGo is perhaps, is mimicking in that they copy what other characters can do, but also maybe miming some of that stuff because I don't know. It,
0: yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting distinction. I honestly hadn't thought about it until you brought it up just now, but he, he definitely it isn't just a mime because the, the proverbial invisible box when he casts fire three after someone else does it, it's real fire three, nothing invisible right. about it. Right. It also makes me wonder if, mimic and mime powers are actually time and space powers because huh i I think you could argue that in order for you to actually have the power to produce you know the fire three or the ultima when someone else has just done it that maybe what mimes are actually doing is repeating using time magic to repeat something that has just happened huh does that make sense i dig that sure why not? Rather than it being legitimately its own isolated event, what they're actually doing is hitting replay on the real world. Think of it that way. I like that. That's
1: cool. So Gogo will say, "I have been idle for too long. If I deem you worthy, I'll mimic your actions in battle. Tell me what you're doing here." And so you do, and and uh, Gogo says, "What an unusual tale. This should be fun." And that is the extent of Gogo's story in Final Fantasy VI. Meta-commentary. What an unusual tale. (laughs) Indeed. A couple more things to do. The ancient castle. You can go to Figaro and have the castle go underground uh, and we'll hit uh, something odd about this stratum. Stop and explore. So you can find an old buried castle where there's grass growing. Up in the uh, World of Ruin, there's no grass growing right now, but down here in the ruined castle there is. And you get a flashback, and this is back during the War of the Magi. Uh, there's an Esper attack, and the people were watching fight back. And, you know, we're not sure if the, who the good guys are, or maybe there are no good guys. We do get a memory. A thousand years ago, a battle was waged. And there's uh, someone says, we'll have to leave this battle in Odin's hands. So is fighting Esper's here. Uh, there is a parallel in that the king of Baron, who was dead before the story starts in Final Fantasy 4, becomes Odin. So too does the king of this place become Odin, or perhaps Odin was the king of this place. Either way, Odin is also an Esper uh, and and uses the Zansetsukin, or the Atom Edge, depending on your translation, to fight off some of the, the enemies here. There's a sorcerer uh, using the sprite of a ghost from the phantom train that turns odin to stone we can read the queen's diary she says i realize now that i'm in love with odin this breaks every rule of our society but my heart longs for this noble elegant man after the fighting is over i'll bear my soul to him this has a particular impact on terra because love between a human and an esper that's that's what she is the the child of there's a hidden staircase and so uh if you approach the statue of odin it will crumble and become magicite and you get the odin magicite and if you get the tear of the queen odin will become raiden and it's sort of like odin has leveled up which will uh be paralleled in final fantasy 8 when Odin sort of levels up you can head back to Thamasa, and this is i think our last thing we can do before we take on kefka in Thamaso, Strago has an old friend named Gung Ho, and they used to fight this monster called the Hydon together. And so uh, Realm will basically convince Gung Ho to pretend to have been injured by Hydon to get Strago to go hunt the monster one last time. So you can go up to Ebbet's Rock, just north of Thamasa. You have to feed a chest like 50 pieces of coral or something, and then you can learn a he can he can learn a special spell from the Hydon called the Grand Train, and then defeat the Hydon. And I love that we've talked about this before. Oftentimes, especially in Western storytelling, you know, your mentor characters, your older characters are, are kind of there to teach the young characters and then move on. In fact, that was a, a large theme in Final Fantasy V. All the older characters, the Dawn warriors, need to sort of teach the younger characters and then they die. They they pass on and pass their their power and also their responsibilities to the younger people. But I like that sometimes the old characters still have goals, still have things they want to do. They're not the ones, you know, they don't their only storyline relevance is not just to die. And I really like that. Yeah. So Gung ho and Strago sort of you know, after Strago defeats Hydon, the the old guys sort of reminisce into the night and Gung Ho and Realm reveal that Gung Ho's wounds are or just sort of a a way to get Strago to to keep moving. And that's basically it for collecting the Warriors of Light. Now we need to defeat the god of madness and nihilism and magic in this world. So it's on to Kefka's Tower. So it's time to take on Kefka. That means we're going to try to land on Kefka's tower. We get a small scene here. Uh, Edgar is gung-ho. It's time to break into Kefka's domain. Celeste seems a bit upset. And says, what's wrong? she says, the statues give the espers the energy they need to live. If we destroy them, what will happen? And Strago says, if we destroy them, espers and magic will disappear from this world. So, Celeste wonders, what will happen to Terra?
0: Yeah. It's one of those things where in the movie, everyone would just turn and look at her. Mm -hmm. And this parallels what happens to Tidus in Final Fantasy X, before the final encounter, where you realize that in order to win the day, you're going to have to risk the life or existence of one of the main, main characters and a good friend. Nevertheless,
1: we must persist. Nice. This is my favorite dungeon because you need three parties to get through it, which means you get to use all 12 characters. Four characters per party times three parties equals 12 characters. Now, if you got the, uh, the extra characters, Gogo and Umaro, you actually have 14 characters, so you gotta leave two people behind, which means I would prefer to use, to, ha- to require four parties, uh, so we could use all the characters, but then you'd have a party of two or maybe a few parties of three. So maybe you should be able to like get Bannon and Leo or something. I don't know. But I want to yeah. use all my characters.
0: Yeah. It fits the themes of the game. Like we're talking about this right. whole thing is about found family and everyone doing this together. So yeah, it, it's great that it works out this way.
1: Um, the music here is kind of heroic. Maybe it's cautiously heroic. Uh, it's It's kind of like, yeah, we can do this. Maybe uh (laughs) and the whole dungeon is is made up of the trash of the destruction of the world but there are certain areas that are very familiar that are obviously from vector uh there's cranes and conveyor belts and it's kind of like the uh the magitek research facility in that way there are a few things i want to touch on mostly it's just a big dungeon there's not a lot of storyline relevance but i do want to point out that kefka's prison cell still exists yeah. and in it is atma or ultima depending yeah. on the translation you've got yeah. he says he, he's got a thing that he says or it has a thing that it says it's a it's a, a monstrous creature perhaps an esper because it says i am atma left here since birth forgotten in the river of time i've had an eternity to ponder the meaning of things and now i have an answer and then it attacks you or if you've got the more recent translation My name is Ultima. I am power, both ancient and unrivaled. I do not bleed, for I am but
0: strength-given form. Feeble creatures of flesh, your time is nigh. Yeah, both are good, but they're they're (laughs) kind of different, aren't they? Both are good. The second one's like better writing overall, Uh except I really uh liked the uh, Lost in the River of Time from the first one. I like that.
1: And it sort of implies that it was created during the time of the War of the Magi, which would suggest perhaps that it's an esper because most of the monsters created then were humans turned into espers, right? yeah I mean we could there there's perhaps a way to dive into the history of of the Atma weapon and and what it means, but I think it just goes on to reinforce that the the cruelty, accidental perhaps, but the cruelty of the of the deities was spread throughout this world right there are two of the eight dragons uh, assuming you've defeated all the other dragons throughout the world if you defeat these two in kefka's tower you get the crusader magicite the guardian robot that you could not defeat in uh, the capital of the empire earlier on you will also have to defeat here it's no longer invulnerable so you can definitely defeat it and then one by one you will encounter and defeat the statues of the warring triad here they are called Poltergeist, Doom, and Goddess. And I got to say, I would have liked if the motivation of the Warring Triad was touched upon more. Like, what does, who is Poltergeist and what does it want? Who is Doom? Who is the Goddess? Uh, you know, What are their personalities? We get all these glimpses and hints. You know, the, the ancient castles we just talked about, Valagarmanda being frozen for all that time, uh, the Esper world, the human world. It's not i I really feel like this is one of the places where the story falls down a little bit. We could know more. we could know more about these three deific beings and their motivations and and who they are and what they do it's It's just kind of glossed over, and I get that because Kefka is the big bad guy, but uh you know in our retelling and our remake, if we were doing this again, I would like to know more about them,
0: yeah. I I think there could be a lot more expanded upon here. I, I'll i say I don't mind that it's left a bit mysterious. It's it certainly, too, it seems like a, I was going to say mythology, but it's not a mythology because it's true in this world, but um, a history that most of the characters themselves don't know, and I think that's part of the reason why it's more justified that we don't go into the great details of it, because... As much as the technology and the steam power and all of this stuff has advanced, it's, it doesn't seem like any of these people have a great understanding of the deep history of their own world. Like, in some ways, they're still living in the Dark Ages. They wouldn't know about these DF well, beings. Well, m- maybe so, but m- maybe most of them wouldn't know, but I'm pretty sure Strago would. Sure. Right. And he would probably be the character it would make the most sense to tell more of that story through, right? Absolutely
1: especially with you know the phoenix is still around right and there's there's rumors that there's this magic rock even before you know before the world of ruin so right. i think i think it could come out more if i were telling this story we would we would eventually get more of the history of of what's going on here and who they are and and why they became the warring triad as opposed to you know the balanced triad or something like that yeah, I like that. So, with the statues all destroyed, that should be the end of magic, right? We should be done. But no, Kefka has drained their power, uh, which is perhaps how we were able to defeat a trio of gods, maybe. Right, right. And beams of light will take our party to to Kefka. Kefka says, Welcome, friends. I knew you'd make it here, so i prepared some suitable entertainment. Which might be why we had to go through a dungeon and fight a bunch of monsters. Yeah. And they, they put it to him. They say, How long are you going to let this destruction continue? And he says, I've tapped the ultimate power. You are like insects to me. I will exterminate everyone and everything. And our guys okay. say, Well right but even if you do that people will keep rebuilding then I'll destroy those too why do people rebuild things they know are going to be destroyed why cling to life when you can't live forever think how meaningless each of your lives is and that that parallels to me some uh, you know other characters in fiction Zand from Final Fantasy 3 wanted to live forever and, and we know how that ended and, and it drove him mad and he sort of failed that test Voldemort and Harry Potter, as we've mentioned before, if he hadn't tried to live forever, he probably would have lived another hundred years or so because Dumbledore was 150 something and still a spry old dude. Voldemort died when he was 70 something. Darth Vader fell into this trap thanks to Emperor Palpatine. It wasn't himself he wanted to save, it was, uh, it was his wife, but uh, you know, again, can't live forever. And, and Locke. Locke had to learn. That sometimes you have to, you just have to let go.
0: So, this is a philosophy called nihilism or nihilism. There are different interpretations of exactly what it means. Uh, Some argue that it's really just the rejection of sort of religious moral principles. Others that it really is the belief that life is meaningless or a, a kind of extreme skepticism that says, nothing in the world is real, nothing really matters, nothing has inherent value. This was popularized by Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know that he coined the term, but it's something he wrote a lot about uh, and actually in some ways rejected, which I don't think is talked about very right. often because it's well known that Adolf Hitler read a lot of this Friedrich Nietzsche and nihilism and bought into it in a very negative and obviously destructive way, interpreting it much the same way that Kefka does here. And it may seem on the surface like an easy philosophy to reject, but it's far more common than I think a lot of people realize. Most people who... Are nihilists about things don't take it to the extreme that Darth Vader or Kefka do. But they do use the principles of it doesn't matter anyway, so why try? We've done that. Everyone listening to this has done that at some point in their lives. It's an easy trap to fall into. If I can get up on a high horse for a minute, it's why a ton of people don't vote or give to charity or or care that much about people outside of their own lives, to see the world's problems as too big for you to do anything about. That if you can't make all the difference, you haven't made any difference. So you don't even begin to try. There are a lot of people who give up on stuff in their everyday lives out of reverence for this kind of, Thinking And so while it's easy to say, of course we reject Kefka because he wants to kill everybody and destroy everything. I think it's important to recognize that his reasons for wanting to kill everybody and destroy everything are the same for why people don't live their best lives or don't try to make the world a better place because it might not work. It might get torn down. Yes, if you build things up, they will eventually be destroyed. But the brilliance to me uh, and there's so we've talked we we've done ten and a half episodes already on this game. I believe that its crowning achievement is in what follows, is in the response to Kefka here, that is just the heart and soul of the game of of the franchise, and I believe of of the beliefs of most of us who play these games, who do have to reject nihilism which could very easily lead to fascism and tyranny. But I wonder if there's a difference between nihilism and, and, and existentialism.
1: And a lot of people seem to want to conflate the two. Right. A lot of people seem to th- want to say that existentialism is nothing matters. And that's not... Okay, so I wasn't the philosophy major, but that's not what it is as I understand it. Existentialism is there is meaning... We, we make the meaning that there is in the world, that there's not a predetermined meaning. Am I, am I correct in that?
0: Yeah. The existentialism would place the individual person sort of at the center of what matters. And it can get a little bit messy here because existentialism naturally agrees that there is free will as an agency and that people must act on their free will and that that sort of creates a kind of morality because if free will is a natural phenomenon of the universe we live in, if you impose on somebody's free will by stealing their stuff or killing them or whatever, burning their house down, you have not just broken a law of the land, you've broken a natural law Of the universe. Uh, So Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I still think there are some issues with allowing just the individual to be the deciding factor for what is moral and what isn't. But at least in existentialism, there's an understanding of an underlying fundamental truth about the universe, certain things that we can't do or shouldn't do, I suppose, because they're imposing on the free will of others, where nihilism doesn't really have that kind of it literally rejects the notion that anything that we know is real in any tangible way. It's it's all made up. Individuals don't really have rights. Groups don't have rights. It's all. It may as well be a simulation, right? We may as well all be living in the Sims.
1: And yet, each one of us knows that our actions impact others. And so, even if it, even if they're right, even if there is morality isn't real, ethics aren't real, Uh, other people's feelings don't matter as much to me. If if you have any sort of empathy, even if that were correct, we should perhaps respect that other people do exist.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually the central theme of Final Fantasy. Almost all of the games, certainly 6 and 10 drive this point home to the extreme where it's not just that other people make your life better and it's neat and it's better to have friends and family. Like that's a very surface level way to read what most Final Fantasy games are about. I don't know why I left eight out of this, nine, any of them. There's (laughs) at the end, almost at the end of all of these games, it is the friends you've made along the way. Uh, But it is the people in your life that, Give don't just give it meaning. Sometimes give it literal existence. Right. But this is their argument against well, whether you want to say it's against nihilism or, or whether it's just against uh, nothing matters as a concept sure. is uh, against cruelty. Right. You use the word empathy. I, I think that's the right thing. Is that there actually is a world where empathy exists, and every time a Final Fantasy hero is given an opportunity to, to answer this question from Kefka, whether it's phrased this way or, or by Seymour or Kuja, whoever's doing it, is to say, because I love these people, right, and that is real, and you can't take that away from me. And as we talked
1: about in Final Fantasy One, that is why the Light Warriors do deserve praise, because they took action, even if it was preordained, they took action. Right. In response, Tara says, it's not the net result of one's life that's important. It's the day-to-day concerns, the personal victories, and the celebration of life and love. It's enough if people are able to experience the joy that each day can bring. Kefka being unconvinced. And have you found joy in this nearly dead world of ours? Mm. And I want to take a moment to focus on nearly dead.
0: Mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead.
1: Because he could have destroyed everything already, Yeah. but he didn't. He's keeping it nearly dead, and I think he's doing it on purpose because he wants to force everybody to come around to his way of thinking that life is meaningless, that life is miserable. But our heroes get to each have their personal thesis statements. Well, I guess Umaro and Gogo don't have them. Yeah. do need to mention. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Terra says, "I know what love is. That has been her whole thing this entire story, and she she knows now
0: what love is. And again, I think that's just the uh, that's their answer. Buy it or don't, but Final Fantasy's answer to why even try is because love exists and it's real." Locke says, I have
1: learned to celebrate life and the living. Cyan, my family lives on inside me. Shadow, oh, Shadow. He says, I know what friendship is and family. Dude. Yeah. Edgar, it is my dream to build a kingdom in which I can guarantee freedom and dignity. Dignity? Yeah, sounds less like a kingdom and more like uh, perhaps some sort of a democratic republic. Right. Savin I have come to experience anew the love of my brother.
0: Aww. Uh-huh. <laughs> lame. <laughs> Brothers are lame. Brothers. Celeste,
1: I have met someone who can accept me for who I am. And after all she's done and all she's been through. Yeah. Strago. I have a special little granddaughter uh, and a little girl who isn't even uh, biologically his granddaughter.
0: Yeah.
1: Realm, and I have a brave grandpa who will stand by me through it all. Setcha says, my friend's airship and her love. Mog, one of the characters who, who p- perhaps does not have that big uh, an impact on the story. He even claims, I have my friends here and Gao. I am Gao. I am your friend. Let's travel together. That's not what he says here. He says, you are my friends, and I uau all of you. And, and so, yeah, this is, this is one big happy family. It is, it has become sort of a trite meme. Uh, it's the friends we made along the way. Yeah. And Kefka dismisses it as such. He says, yes. this is sickening. You sound like chapters from a self-help booklet. For my next trick, I will make you all disappear. That's a great line. It is a great line. He casts the light of judgment across the world. He says, I will create a monument to non-existence. How's
0: that for juxtaposition? Yeah. Dude, you off the chain. Uh, uh, monuments can't exist in non-existence. but Right. that like you, like you were talking about, though, that is the ultimate irony of being a nihilist, that a lot of... People who would assume that even a guy who's taking it to the extreme can't take it all the way because he still wants to exist. Whether he wants to admit it or not, he wants to exist and he wants to have power. And like you said, he wants people to agree with him. And in order for people to agree with him, there have to be people. He wants people to worship him. And again, you need people for that. So he says, what fun is it to destroy
1: everything if no precious lives are lost? Life, dreams, hope. Where do they come from? Where are they headed? I'm going to destroy it all. So as we'll talk about it uh, here in a few minutes, Final Fantasy VI claims you as the player, uh, one of our cast members, right? one of the heroes, one of the warriors of light. And we've talked before about how Final Fantasy sort of has this, uh, the player is the hand of fate idea. So I, uh, I wrote up a response to Kefka. It might be trite, but that's okay. <laughs> you want to know why we're here, Kefka? Why we persist in the face of destruction and despair? We are here to prove that love really is more powerful than hate. Kindness is stronger than cruelty. Hope overcomes despair. And you may think it's silly. You may think it's a joke. You may think it trite enough for a self-help pamphlet. So I'll put it in a way you can understand we are stronger than you. All of us. From expectant parents to widows writing letters, from grim Colosseum fighters to gullible thieves, from the most exalted of generals to the loneliest of orphans. For all our differences, all our flaws, we are still stronger than you. And, on behalf of everyone who can't be here, we are here to stand against your hatred, your cruelty, and your despair. And we're going to kick your
0: ass. (laughs) love it. I love it. I think that's a a perfect encapsulation of the whole thing. And, And if I were, I didn't write one down, but if I were to add something you mentioned for everyone that isn't here, maybe my response would just be a list of names. This is for Daryl. This is for Rachel. This is for General Leo. This is for Bannon and Arvis. On down the line. This is for the orphans in Mobliz. This is for the thieves in Zozo, who keep lying about what time it is. We fight for the living. We fight for hope. And we will rebuild after you're gone life finds a way about that
1: so there's a big
0: boss fight here and I believe there's a metaphor buried somewhere within (laughs) I don't know I don't know how buried it is I mean it's unless if you don't know your religious imagery that well it might just look like some cool stuff because it is that but the final battle of of Final Fantasy VI is presented in a really interesting way. You fight up a a tower of enemies all stacked on top of each other, sort of like interwoven and mashed together in this sometimes beautiful, sometimes very horrific way. And it's at the very bottom, the, the first part of the fight, there's this satanic-looking demon from just the waist up that you fight and this is supposed to represent all of this actually is Dante's Divine Comedy the Inferno and this is the first part the Inferno Satan is is stuck in the frozen lake and that's why you only see the top half of his body so After you defeat that, the screen moves you up to the next level, which is supposed to represent purgatory. And there's all of these beings, as I kind of said together, just sort of mashed together. Uh, They look like statues. And I didn't recognize this until like the fifth or sixth time I played through. It's an amalgamation of monsters and, and characters you've defeated throughout the game. Vargas is in there. The ultimate weapon is in there, the goddess who you just defeated, one of the deities, is in there, and they're all stuck halfway between heaven and hell, in in purgatory here, because Kefka has ascended to god status. After you defeat that section of crazy-looking enemies, you move up to the third, which is paradise, or heaven, and this is the one that I think is the most obvious because it is presented basically as a giant statue of Mother Mary holding Jesus, dead Jesus, and 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 crying. This is this is very famous imagery from the Bible, or well, there's not pictures in the Bible, from Christian uh, thinking and and history, and. Uh, it's the the death of, of Jesus Christ, right? Which is this, it's a very, very powerful image. And of course, after that, we know there, there's a resurrection and you ascend to God level. When you defeat the paradise level, you move up to the very, very final encounter with Kefka, who now has four golden wings, and looks very much like a Christian archangel. You've reached paradise, and Kefka is depicted uh, like early descriptions of Lucifer. This Again, it's not super subtle. He basically looks like fallen Lucifer in this battle. The irony, of course, of the background looking like you're in heaven. Like you're killing a a god here, or, the very, or a false god, however you want to put it, but the religious imagery smashes you in the face here. And also the music played on the pipe organ. It's very church-like uh, and also super epic, of course. Uh, it, it's just amazing to behold how much they put into this final battle. And then of course, you know, after you've managed to defeat Kefka, he will disintegrate as the ultimate villains in Final Fantasy do. And you've done it. You have defeated the false god, or the actual god, depending on how you look at it, the god uh-huh. of magic. And madness. And and madness and, and nihilism. Power. And thereby, of course, proving in the minds of the creators that, as you put it, love will defeat hate, hope will defeat despair, and it does. And in so doing, the magic that our characters have equipped and used to, 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 help, to help defeat Kefka, uh, they, they begin flying up into the air and disintegrating. And our characters recognize, ah, yes, this is what we thought might happen, the magic is disappearing from the world. Not only that, but because this giant tower that we are upon is being held together by all of this magic, it is collapsing. And so while we've defeated the big bad guy, our characters aren't quite safe yet. They still got to get out of this thing. So
1: Terra morphs into her Esper form, uh, though it does seem to pain her some. And she says, I can lead you out with my last ounce of strength. And then we get uh, this sort of end credit scene. Uh, the yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, to use a word you've you've made one of the the watchwords of the episode, could feel very trite. There was a lot of talk. Game of Thrones just ended not that long ago, and. While I don't agree with most of the criticisms, it did not have the satisfying end to a lot of the character arcs that I think a lot of people wanted. And I think some of those criticisms are fair. But it's very difficult to do when you've got a giant cast of characters with all different kinds of motivations and and interests to wrap it up neatly or not too neat. And there are a lot of movies that do this thing at the end where they're like, you know, Sandlot. You know, so and so went sure, on to own a business, sure. and that guy went on to Animal do that. and then the one guy became a John Belushi became master. a senator. Yeah, a lot of, group. <laughs> <laughs> and Final Fantasy VI kind of gives us something like that here, where every character gets a little coda mm-hmm. to their story. Some of them. But are, are
1: not as much about their arc because the arc finished somewhere in the world of ruin,
0: but we'll, right. yeah. So, but it's sort of a, a thematic closing for each of our 14 characters, obviously built in. We'll have to talk about the piece of music in that right. episode, but it's built in so specifically to how this is presented. Um, but even the way it's presented, like, it's like the play is over at this point, even though it's not really. There's still some stuff to do because they back out for a moment. We get this black screen on the top and bottom. It's widescreen all of a sudden. And there's just a table, this long sort of nicely decorated table. And it. as the camera moves from left to right, we see an object that represents each one of the characters And then we get a little scene of that character while their theme plays. And I have to say, this is one of the most satisfying conclusions to a story of all time in my book. It just is so well done that you get one last little moment with all of these people that you love. uh, And then you still get a little bit of ambiguity about, you know, whatever will happen next to them in this world. But this is extraordinarily well done.
1: First is Cyan, the object upon the table that represents him as a katana. He gets sort of one of the uh, less impactful ones and a little more humorous. I do like it, though. They're going down a set of stairs, he and Edgar and a few of the others, and the set of stairs retracts. And Edgar's hanging on, you know, by the skin of his fingernails. And he says, Cyan, can you throw that switch? And Cyan says, I hate machines. And he, like, tries to do it and tries to do it and eventually he attacks it. And the stairs reappear. And he says, you have to show technology
0: who's boss. (laughs) Yeah, I love this one because it's a humorous end to his arc, which has been so sad and dark and and all of these things. But it still fits with his general theme of, okay, now he's sort of a little bit more centered emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but he's still now living in this world where the technology is advancing. He feels like the old man, but he's, you know what? He's not going to be scared of that anymore either. He's got clear eyes for the future now. And like you said, he's not just an old man waiting to die. He's a man who's got a whole new life out there ahead of him, and all of this technology to discover.
1: Setzer is represented by falling playing cards. The party is headed through this area, and there's a door right in front of them, and they're about to go through it, but the door disappears like a sliding wall gets in the way or something, so... There's a door to the left and a door to the right. And he flips a coin. And the coin falls to the left, so uh, Celeste and a few of the others start to go that way. And he says, wait, stop! And then the door explodes and like there's fire coming out. And he points to the door on the right and says, let's go that way. And and they go and he says... Uh, he, he's by himself, so his last line is, sometimes in life you just have to feel your way through a situation. Daryl, I'm starting to sound just like you. Yeah.
0: What I find... I think most interesting about this is that while it's never really come out and said directly, Setzer has been sort of a more logical person. And and we talked about how in the beginning he wasn't really with the cause because he could kind of live above it, but he very quickly comes on board. But there's a lot of very calculated thinking with him even in the world of ruin when he's drinking himself into a bottle he's going look but the chances we're gonna do this are very slim so let me just live out my life right but he learns that it's not all just about the chances and the odds and the thing that's most likely to happen sometimes you do have to take a leap of faith edgar and Saban
1: are represented by a two-headed coin and they get a, a combined one here. It's kind of interesting. Edgar doesn't actually say anything during this one. But uh, there's a, a door that needs to be worked open, and, and Edgar's working on it, and suddenly a beam falls. And Savin jumps in and grabs the beam. He, he, uh, he catches it before it can crush his brother. And Savin gets to say, I didn't turn my back on the kingdom. I knew you would be a better king. And I trained hard, knowing I would have to help you one day. Now I know what all these stupid muscles are for.
0: Yeah. And a, and a great juxtaposition of engineering and strength. There, there's a big theme in steampunk about how engineering is only as good as the human beings behind it. And the two of them working as a tandem, the one guy who's maybe a little bit more of the intellectual and more into the engineering and all the tools and gadgets, and but he still needs his bro who knows how to Punch someone in the face if they really—if it comes down to it—and and they're just a great combo that way.
1: Mog is represented by a, a sort of a music box, I think. It's a there's a tree and there's like Muggles around it, and uh, it's got a a sort of cranking key on one side. I find that image actually really interesting because in this world, the Mughals live in caves. They don't live in a forest like they do in Final Fantasy V, and I wonder if that's. Uh, meant to represent that perhaps Mughals will come out of hiding now?
0: Oh, I like that, because at the end of the scene that you're about to describe with Mog, uh, the the Mughals on the little box actually get off of it and start moving forward to the next scene. So I love that. I love that notion that in the future of this world, the Mughals can come out of the caves and help rebuild and move back into the forests.
1: This one's uh, comical as well. Our party is moving along and the floor disappears and Mog is hanging on for dear life this time. And it's Edgar who has to jump over and work some machinery to snag him with a hook, much like one might in a crane machine game where you grab the, uh, the plushie doll. Uh, and so he grabs Mog and hauls him over to, to a, a catwalk. And Mog says, watch the hair, watch the hair. <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, come on, you're saving your life. Priorities. Umaro uh who our little Moogle mechanical Mughals perhaps uh are are walking toward is represented by a skull and bones. Uh, this is another one that's perhaps not terribly what's the word? Deep? (laughs) Sure, it's not terribly deep. They they come to a door that they can't get through and Celeste tries to break through it and Umaro's there. And I always thought Umaro's gonna break through the door, but no, Umaro breaks through a wall and, and they continue yeah. on that way.
0: <laughs> All right. On like you way. said,
1: sometimes you just need muscle. Sometimes Captain America needs to look up and say, Hulk, smash. Smash. Yeah. Go-Go is represented by a helmet. Another floor breaks apart. And there's a button in order that needs to be pressed simultaneously in order to move a platform. So uh, Celeste goes to push the buttons, and GoGo will uh, mimic her exactly and manages to push the buttons, and the and the platform moves so that they can move on. I don't know if it's meant to be humorous, but as they move on, GoGo moves to follow and falls in a pit.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure what happened there either. Or like <laughs> that was very interesting, and I says. Just supposed to guess whatever the future holds for gogo
1: so yeah i don't know if gogo gets out of the tower or not i hope so or maybe gogo moves on to the next world
0: or yeah falls into another dimensional rift and goes off somewhere else yeah i don't know it's really weird though like and they're on purpose like they didn't have to put that in there so someone has some idea of what the end of gogo's story is or what the next chapter of gogo's story is but uh, again, t- uh, some of these are very neat. That one is extremely yes, it is. <laughs> Who knows? Gao is represented by the diving helmet that three people share. Yeah, I always thought that was an interesting one to pick for him, but I, I guess I'm not sure what other item. I would I'm not sure either.
1: An animal skin? We've already got bones and and a, a skull for Umaro. I don't know.
0: Maybe the dried meat that you have to Maybe. offer him, but that might. Look weird, and and his biggest contribution to the plot and, and helping the characters get to where they need to and ultimately achieve their goal is the underwater breathing device. And so,
1: fair enough. I it's suppose. not like he has a whole lot of material things that he cares about. He cares about the people, right? That's one of the things that's so great about
0: it. Is he uauzu? Yeah,
1: uh, Gao finds a shortcut that will send him careening down the tower which makes no sense to me because I'm pretty sure they're supposed to be going up to get to the
0: airship. So Gao's ending is, he founds a shortcut. (laughs) Yeah. And he just sort of falls down. And and, and it is very silly, but there's also, I think, a a meta-commentary going on there about sometimes not having your brain filled with a bunch of stuff about what you're supposed to do allows you to see things that other people don't see. And he does find a shortcut and it works and the characters follow him and just sort of shrug their shoulders and go, Okay, and I think it's Celeste and Edgar, like right. two of the most, you know, experienced tacticians in the game, and they just follow Gao down this path because he knows. Ooh, hey, what do you think of this? How about the tuxedo or a tuxedo, and then it gets like ripped up. Or oh, something.
1: for his item instead of the diving helmet.
0: Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe a bow tie. A bow tie. Yeah, yeah, for when they tried to take him to meet him. but that's not really who he is. That's who he's not. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Locke and Celeste get a uh, scene together
1: and they are represented by a bouquet presumably the bouquet from the opera
0: and I believe his bandana is sitting there as well. oh is it under the bouquet, maybe I missed that yeah well that yeah. would
1: be appropriate because again the floor is falling apart Celeste drops the bandana that, presumably that same bandana that uh, helped get her off the island whether or not it was one of Locke's who's to say and she stops and goes for it grabs it, but the floor falls out from underneath her, and now she's the one hanging on for dear life. Locke is not about to let her fall. He runs and he slides along the floor and grabs her, and he says, I won't let you go. I promise. And he, and he hauls her up, and he, and he says, you almost ate it trying to pick up that silly trinket. I'm not sure now is the right time to be scolding Celeste, but there you yeah. go. I do really like this scene because... It does allow Locke to be the hero, you know, we all want him to be, and it does
0: allow Celeste to be sentimental. And in our retelling of this, Celeste would be one of the primary warriors in in, in the final battle, right? She's one of the people most responsible for actually being able to defeat Kefka. And in the game, I mean, if you just want to break it down this way, she's got some of the most powerful natural statistics so it's most likely that she's been one of the people who was able to do the most damage to kefka so i like the idea that like her and tara are probably the most powerful of our heroes in destroying kefka so she does this great big thing where she kills a god but then she needs to be saved so it doesn't like undercut her that she's like, she's not like some damsel in distress in this moment. She was just one of the most important people in killing a God, but everybody needs a little help from time to time. And for her to be able to accept being saved where I think any other time of the game, she'd have been like, I don't need you to save me. dude. Right. Right. Then she's just like, thank yeah. you. Thank you. She saves us all. He saves her.
1: Terra is represented by a pair of wine glasses and uh, a pendant. I assume it's the pendant that he gave to Madonna. Where did the wine glasses come from? One of the uh, Amano artworks has her with a wine glass. I assume it's a carryover from that, but it's not like throughout the story she's well known for
0: wine glasses. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I I always thought that was an interesting one, too. I, I think there are some other things that you probably could have done for her, but it's, it's a nice image.
1: Terra's scene is uh, they're, they're walking through the old Magisite research facility, and it's where all the broken tubes are. And uh, a piece of Magisite goes into the air and is about to disappear, and it's Meduin, And he, he speaks to her. He says, Terra, we must part now. Espers will disappear from this world forever. But... If the human part of you is attached to something or someone, you might be able to remain.
0: And again, very similar to Squall needing Renoa at the end of eight in time compression. Zidane needing the love of his friends to bring him back at the end of nine. Titus doesn't <laughs> go the same way for him. We'll get to that. But the argument there that he is a real boy, it's all tied into if your love for something in this world is strong enough.
1: Realm is represented by a paintbrush. Uh, she and Strago are moving along one of the conveyor belts and Strago falls. And she picks him up and puts them on her back. And I think that is awesome. Uh, it is the responsibility of the young to continue to care for the elderly. It very strongly parallels the things we talked about in Final Fantasy V you know having to to take on the burdens of the people who came before uh but sometimes that's just the correct thing to do and she says to him grandpa quit goofing around if i hear even a peep out of you i'm gonna draw your portrait which from realm is a threat and then she says uh but you know sometime i would like to do a portrait of you on canvas of course (laughs) which is it's nice like you know, she she claimed her grandfather uh, as, as the reason she keeps going against Kefka's nihilism. So I I really I, like their relationship.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super sweet. And it's unique uh, among all the Final Fantasy orphans. And there are a lot of Final Fantasy orphans. But she's unique in that she's very proactive about taking care of her grandpa and being involved in the conflict she's very headstrong and funny and opinionated and capable even at her age and she is the hope she is the future of this world shadow
1: is represented by an apple (laughs) wait
0: wait, what and then ninja stars in the apple yeah i don't i don't know why that's it's neat I don't know why the apple, but it's this one really works because it, I think it has the exact intended effect. At first, you're like, an apple. What the hell's with the apple? And then just two precision throws from the Ninja Stars. Also, the technology to do that on the Super Nintendo I hadn't seen anything quite like that the way they very quickly appear in the apple. Ah, Ninja Stars. That's a perfect representation of Shadow. So, this
1: is the one I don't like. Uh, shadow is following the other heroes along uh, and then he stops and he sort of goes into this little secluded nook and interceptor of course stops and and follows him and shadow says interceptor get going and he he tells interceptor to go on Uh, and 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 the dog does he he follows with the rest of the heroes and shadow moves further deeper into the uh, tower of kefka and he says and I think this is a translation that's sort of uh, fudged. Yeah. He says, Baram, yeah. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to begin all over again. But that's not what's going on here.
0: No, the, the begin all over again line is not uh, correct. I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's like, it very much appears that he's going to stay there and die right. on Kefka's tower. I don't see any other interpretation of what he's doing here. And I don't mind that as a, character finale arc for him, but the, the line about, I'm going to start over again anew, like, totally throws right. it off. Like, no, you're not. You're quitting. Well, and and so the reason I
1: don't like this scene is because well, so we talked about uh, at the beginning of the World of Ruin how Celeste is, you know, perhaps the only main character who's attempted suicide forgetting here that, that uh, Shadow does so just just to correct that a bit but i I don't like it because I feel like he has worked so hard to re engage with his emotions to to work to protect his daughter who he's not even going to admit to her he you know is is his daughter. I feel like celeste's situation was so much better done, and this one sort of just happens. I would not have written it this way i don't I don't like it uh if if it's going to happen, I think we need to have more of a buildup and we just don't get it with shadow that he would just stay behind here.
0: I, I guess one of the reasons why I always bought it a little bit was because of the way the world of balance ends. And it seemed pretty clear to me that he, if not at a death wish was like totally fine dying in some sort of heroic gesture and while this in itself isn't really a heroic gesture i think it's just that you know they've they've done what there is to do he said many times that the only thing i'm good at is fighting and killing I'm like well that's presumably over now the empire's gone kefka's gone there's there, there will still be fighting sure but but, but but he has also
1: claimed uh in defiance right. of kefka that you know i i know who my friends are i know who my family is so i right. just uh if he was going to commit suicide, I, I would want more there somehow to.
0: Yeah, I buy that. I buy that. I, I think there's probably, you're right, that there. he's the one character that I wouldn't mind seeing a rewrite of the way that this concludes. Even just to make it clearer, even if they stick with, he stays on there to die, make that clearer. Or maybe that other line is in there because you know, he's staying behind so that all of these people will think he's dead, but he's just going to create a new, new identity, but you don't have to stay on the tower to do that. So I, yeah, I don't, it's a bit fuzzy. Um, and and you're right. I, I think to better sell the, the themes of the game, it would make more sense if he tried to find a new life to live, or maybe even took off the mask and introduced himself to realm. That it might be, again, trite and, and too clean and too happy. But I think there's also plenty of reason to believe that he would do that at this point. So I don't know, maybe in our rewrite retelling. But that I mean, that's a huge change to do. That would be something if we had Shadow take off his mask. I do like that he never does take off yeah. his mask and we never see you know, what he looks like now. But I do think that would be a very powerful conclusion to his story. Cause you're right. He never tells Realm, yeah. but there's something about that that I like yeah. too. That he, as a storytelling device, not as a person. As, as a person, I'd be like, dude, tell your right. daughter. Um, I yeah, I'm not sure, but
1: like, I'm not sure how I would do it yeah. differently. But I don't feel like this conclusion was built up enough. Agreed. You've you've sold. <laughs> Our last character who, who needs a, a bit of an epilogue here is Strago and he is represented by that same book that we started this, uh, this end to crawl with. Uh, he's jumping for the hook that will get us to the airship uh, and it moves just out of reach and he says, a kid like me doesn't know the meaning of defeat and so he sprints up a bit of the tower and grabs the hook just as Realm uh, runs up to him and he grabs Realm's hand and they all get on board the airship.
0: I also think, and I hadn't thought of this until we were going back and doing this, because Strago's object is the book that, you know, we had talked about maybe Mog is the narrator of the story, but I also think you could have Strago be the narrator oh, of sure. the story going all the way back to a thousand years ago. There was a War of the Magi. We're talking about who actually knows the history. He would be the one that does. There's the book at the beginning that starts this whole end scenario here, and then he is represented by the book. I always assumed that was just a book of magic that he would have been learning from. But perhaps Strago is also the Araslam of this story. That's the guy right. who tells the story in, in Final Fantasy. Or,
1: or the Bagginses, if
0: you prefer. Right, right. He is the Bagginses. But I, yeah, I, it's you, you go a lot of interesting ways with that. I don't know. Who would you be tempted to do if we were casting this again as, as our TV show? Who's the narrator, Strago or right. Mog, Or you could have them both be
1: me. Well, throughout the game... We have different characters give us tutorials sometimes it's mog sometimes it's the kappa you know so yeah maybe right uh and and the last warrior of light to to be claimed here is you which uh, as we've already discussed is nice
0: yeah one of the things it does here you, you said like it's rolling credits but it is an interesting way of rolling credits because they also say before each scene It gives us the name. If you've just named them Terra and Celeste, it'll say Terra as Terra Branford. This is the first time in-game you get a notion that any of these characters had last names. And if you've named them something else, if you named them Drew and Ira, then it'll say Drew as Edgar Figaro, Ira as Saban Figaro, And uh, it's pretty cool that it, again, driving home that theme about it being a stage play, being an opera itself, that these characters have been played by someone, is really fascinating to me.
1: Everyone's on board the airship and Setra's flying it out of here and Terra in her Esper form flies ahead to to lead the way. Uh, The last piece of Magisite, we're not sure who it was, does eventually poof from existence. And Celeste is the one who shouts to Terra, your power is fading. Uh, So they get up out of the tower and, and she literally starts to fade, Terra does, and she begins to fall. Sets her, though, as the fastest airship in the world, and he sends it into a dive. And for a moment, we don't know what happens. We cut away. We see the kids of Mobliz standing on a hill, uh, and they can see something falling out of the sky. And they run inside where Katrin is in labor, and it sort of fades out from that. And we, we come back to the airship, and everyone on board is prone, passed out perhaps, and Terra's not there. Celeste's first to come to. She begins searching everybody. I don't know. Are you Terra? Are you Terra? Uh, you know she's she's checking on everybody, but it's it's pretty clear that Terra isn't here. And if this is a really like super nintendo-y version of this trick where the character we're looking for is just out of scene and eventually we pan yeah. forward just a little bit and and tara is there and uh celeste helps her get her on her feet and Terra thanks sets her and uh i think it's pretty clear then that the children of mobliz uh is the reason that Terra is able to remain in this world and we roll the credits and there are birds and there is greenery uh, as the credits are rolling the airship, the, the falcon is, is flying around. We do get one more uh, little bit of a scene here where we, we get to see Katrin's baby is born and everybody seems happy and healthy there. Hope baby. Hope baby, absolutely. The kids run out to wave at the airship and Tara waves back. We fly over Thamasa where they're fixing the burned-out house Fly over. I can't even remember which town it is. Uh, the town where they were trying to grow the plant that wouldn't grow, which is finally growing. I. They're rebuilding. They're rebuilding. We we fly over Figaro Castle. The the world is at least working toward balance now. And the the last thing that happens is Terra goes
0: to the fore of the airship and she unbinds her hair. Yeah. And then her her hair flows behind her in the wind in a super triumphant way. And I wish this was the very, very, very final shot. There's one more after it of just from below the airship soaring through the sky. And that's pretty cool. And I think it does a good job representing the sort of technology hope and rebuild hope and, and just hope in general. But the hero shot where... We see all of the characters on the deck of the airship and Tara, who has been this kind of ball of anxiety since we booted up the game, just so emphatically and triumphantly puts her foot forward, throws her hair into the wind. It's just such this, we're going forward now. Uh, hero shot. I-, I love it so much. So. I- as much as I do like the shot of the, of the airship from underneath that is the very final one before the screen goes black and they roll the credits, in, in our retelling, I would push very hard for the final image we get from this game to be the entire party, the cast of 14 characters, Terra at the head of the ship, foot forward, onward we go. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. You can follow us on all the social media at FFWeeklyPod. And remember that you can listen to this podcast totally for free on archive.org or on our Patreon at patreon.com slash FFWeekly. But if you'd like to download it on any of your normal podcast providers, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Make sure you join us next time when we discuss the art and gameplay of Final Fantasy VI and take a deep dive into the world of steampunk.